Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Jenkins! Hey, dear listeners, this is John Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I am very excited uh, about today's guest, um, uh, and we'll get get to that in one second just so you know we are sticking with our recording schedule um so i'm recording this on thursday morning and yes russia is in the middle of invading ukraine but we're not going to do a show about ukraine right now i'm hoping to get leon aaron back on to sort of walk through some of the stuff he may have not gotten entirely right the last time he was on um but regardless uh We'll have plenty of coverage of Ukraine. The other dispatch podcasts are going to be all over the place with Ukraine. And probably next week, I'll be talking about Ukraine. But right now, it's a lot of fog of war. There's not a lot of new stuff happening. We've talked about it a bunch around here. And I last thing I wanted to do was either drop today's guest or um, force her to talk about something that she didn't feel like she had a lot to say at this moment. Um, or really to get into an argument with a libertarian about foreign policy at all. Last time we had a libertarian on here, I had Peter Sutterman on here, and we spent 45 minutes hashing over the role of waiting a long time in foreign policy and how that should be weighted in our calculus about the withdrawal from Afghanistan, and everybody hated it um, and got mad at me and got mad at Peter, and um, the rest of the conversation was fine, but man, did people get upset. Um, so we're not going to do that. And so instead, I've got one of my absolute favorite people who I cannot believe I have not had on here um, until now, and I am ashamed for that. Uh, um, nevertheless, I'm rem- remedying it now. Uh, the editor-in-chief of Reason Magazine, uh, longtime friend, Kat- uh, Catherine Mangu Ward. Sorry, I'm, I'm all <laughs> fluttered this morning. Welcome to The Remnant. Hi, Jonah. Thanks for having me on. And thanks for not making me fight with you for 45 minutes about foreign policy. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't just like foreign policy. I mean, as you know, I think libertarianism in many ways is the greatest philosophy ever created, except for two weak points: children and foreign policy. But um, it was purely this thing about how we had been in there so long, and therefore that should be the reason why we leave. And I kind of had a, like a Chesterton's fence kind of position, as one might expect of me. And he was like, "No, you." Oh no, you know, I listened. I listened to that thing. Uh, and yes, we we don't need to do that again. I will say, um, you know, I think the official libertarian position is war bad. Um, oh, no, yeah. not good with the killing. Um, there's, of course, many, many libertarians who could offer more subtle and sophisticated takes on what is happening right now. But I know, like many people, I woke up this morning, looked at my news feeds and thought, not... Not good news for not freedom, good. not good news for the individual people who are affected in Ukraine in particular. 
All right. So without without making a foreign policy point, I figure since we're on this, just a quick question. I have this. I, I think you and I probably are. You know, we're in different battalions to be sure, but we're on the same side of the conflict when it comes to what some people on the right are calling, you know, uh, national conservatism or nationalism, whatever. Um, and I think that one of the most infuriating things that this Ukraine stuff exposes is looking at, I get it. There are, there are sort of America first isolationist ish people who are making a different argument, but people like Yoram Hazoni and a lot of others have made this argument that the nation state qua the nation state is just the best single way to organize society and that uh, there should be no supranational things, that we should respect everybody's borders, that this is a fundamental question of political morality. Um, and here you have you know, a guy basically trying to erase a nation, and that crowd is pretty damn quiet about it. Do you have a political or psychological or otherwise theory about why that might be? Yeah, I do think that there is a worship of power embedded in the new national conservatism. And uh, it's, you know, it's undeniable that what Putin exhibits, what he has in spades, is um, the willingness and ability to wield power. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, you see this in the weird um, Hungary worship that is coming out of a lot of the national conservative space. You see it um, in the Trump, you know, the fandom of Trump. These are all people who are kind of unapologetic authoritarians. And that that is like a uniting factor that um, I don't know whether this is a psychological point or a political point, because I think that national conservatives would say, yeah, there are times when authority is the correct, you know, it is is the correct mode to be operating. And when when power is the only solution to, you know, human human uh, human problems. but. Um, but yeah, I when I when I see a kind of um, looking away from what's happening in the Ukraine and from Putin's like many 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 um, moral and political failings, I, what I see there is just a a deep fondness for the exercise of authority, and uh, and I think that's one of the most dangerous kind of core attributes of the national conservative movement that is afoot. Yeah, no, I, I think that's definitely right. I just wrote a thing yesterday about how, like, you know, because Sora Mamari and Adrian Vermeule loved this morally, this moral atrocity of an essay over in American Affairs that basically just talked about how there's this consistent through line of Chinese anti-poverty programs, starting with Mao, and yeah. that it was oh, that all was a great. Great the yada 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 the great leap forward. Yeah, yeah, no, yada yada tyranny or whatever. Yeah, and they he just completely forgot to mention murdering tens of millions of their own people like 60 million deaths like whatever you gotta break some eggs to make it you know it's like this is this should be something that shouldn't be terribly um shouldn't be terribly political you know it shouldn't be a question of what your other political priors are to say like that thing what happened in china there 
we're all against it. Like that was a huge mistake and we should not repeat it. And the fact that it's not even referenced uh, or, and this is, this is to be fair in the great horseshoe theory that we are now inhabiting. This is also something that the left has done for ages and ages. You know, everyone agrees Hitler is bad. Yes. Okay. We're all on the same page. Let's talk about an equivalent number of deaths uh, or more under a political umbrella in China. Nope. That's just, you know, true communism has never been tried. Look away. Right. You know, Stalin's intentions were good. Um, um, but, you know, the, but I'll, 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 the only thing I was going to say is, well, I agree with you absolutely that power, power worship is one of the only things that has explanatory power for all the inconsistencies that you see all over the place. But I don't think it's the only explanation. There's also that sort of just, and I'm sure you don't disagree, but there's the partisan tribal nonsense stuff, right? Like, if it was purely power worship, then all these guys would be going, you know, uh, tumescent over Trudeau sending out, you know, the, the troops to get rid of the trucks. Right. Mm-hmm. Instead, that's a dictatorship. That's horrible. That's totalitarianism. Um, and so the power worship thing kind of falls apart a little bit with that. And I think what takes over is the sort of partisan tribal bullshittery. Um, but anyway, we don't have to dwell on this unless you want to dwell on this. Cause I, 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 I always welcome uh, uh, people to come in from the top rope on this kind of stuff <laughs> and tag me out. Um, I actually, what, what I've been wanting to talk to you about for a long time is the state of, I was going to call it your tribe, but there are in fact many tribes of libertarianism, uh, the, the state of, of libertarianism, broadly speaking. Um, I've heard reports. Our mutual friend Ron Bailey has told me that there's a sort of populist nationalist syncretic thing going on with the libertarian parts of the libertarian party. Um, um, I remember years ago you told me that you were seeing more young kids into the positive liberty stuff instead of the negative liberty stuff. And I've always been meaning to follow up with you about it. Um, So I know reason's doing great and reason is great, but how's libertarianism doing i mean you'd think you'd be in stronger shape after running washington for 30 years yeah i know the the we're so tired from all the <laughs> all of our labors running the all the, the country. winning <laughs> all the winning i'm you're going to be tired of winning if you're a libertarian jonah that's what i am always saying um no i mean so there this is part of the you know to to tie us to your previous remarks this is part of the weird kind of national conservative um pitch is, you know, these these libertarians or sometimes interchangeably these neoliberals, um, you know, they've been in charge for too long and it's clear that their their model has failed. Um, and, you know, I think for anyone who identifies as a libertarian who's been working in the libertarian movement for a long time, that doesn't ring terribly true. Um, but I think there are sort of two counter, you know, there are two countervailing forces that are happening within what I would say is the libertarian movement. Um, the first is uh, actually last night I uh, saw some old friends and they are not not terribly political. And, you know, we sat down and they said, so this is an incredible moment for libertarianism, which I thought was an interesting perception from outsiders, uh, mm-hmm. from people who aren't thinking about this every day. And their accounting of it was um, COVID has shown the world, but um, in particular, a kind of plugged in middle class American, how incredibly horrible the government is at doing things. And people are really, really mad at their Mm -hmm. governments. Um, And so in that sense, it's a libertarian moment. And I think 
that's not wrong. I do think that there is this kind of natural libertarianism in Americans in particular, and that it has been activated by the ineptitude and, um, and you know, um, unapologetic path changing that we have seen from especially public health authorities, but not only public health authorities, and certainly everyone who is the parent of a school-age child has become at least one tick more libertarian in yeah, the last I couple of years. Right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think that actually from that perspective, I am generally a, a very, very strong believer that you should never pursue the once things get bad enough, everyone will be on my side, right? Like that's the thing mm. you hear in politics all the time. Right. Well, we have to, you know, once the debt is big enough, people will start to take fiscal discipline seriously. Once the, you know, once the the situation worsens sufficiently for the Republican Party, they will pivot on X issue or Y issue. That is not the way. Um, in fact, I think, you know, this is true at the individual level and at the social and political level. People are able to change when things are going well. I mean, I think, you know, you see that just interpersonally. Like, I'm not in a place to hear a criticism and maybe rethink some of my priors if I'm under stress, if everything is a disaster for me. I'm going to be able to hear that and change when things are going kind of well. Um, and I think that's true for political parties. I think that's true for organizations, right? Like, it's much better to make, you know, HR or budget changes in a firm when uh, when things are going well, not when you're in crisis. And... You know, so I think that that in general, I don't think the way to make America more libertarian is for it to get more authoritarian and everyone to freak out. But the last couple of years are a bit of a counterpoint to that, because I do think some of that is happening right now. On the flip side, I think you have the kind of formal, you know, political fortunes of libertarians. And I include here both the Libertarian Party and people in Congress who might identify as libertarian leaning um, or, you know, whose whose views are libertarian inflected. Um, there are fewer people than ever on the Hill who I would consider even moderately okay. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there, there have, in my lifetime, you know, as long as I've been aware of politics, there has been at least a little posse of folks that I would describe as libertarian-ish who held some power in Congress, some power in Washington. Um, that group is... That group has vanished to almost nothing. Um, and I think when you're looking to folks like, you know, Cinema or Mansion or Mitt Romney um, for your libertarianism, you know, that's not it's not a great that's state thin of affairs. Gruel. Yeah. That's thin gruel. That is yeah. one potato in the soup. And it's it's not great. Um, at the same time, the Libertarian Party is kind of tearing itself apart. Um, I have never been a member of the Libertarian Party. I do not pay close attention to the Libertarian Party. But, um, you know, all is not well on that front from what I can tell. And it's too bad because I would I would love for there to be a viable third party that is uh, that is libertarian or at least libertarian ish. Um, you know, the forces arrayed against a viable third libertarian party are mostly outside of that party. It is mostly the dominance of the Democrats and the Republicans that make that impossible. Yeah. Not the not the Libertarian Party itself, but the Libertarian Party itself is definitely going through a rough patch at this point. But I mean, I mean, you, you probably remember this history better than I do. But like listeners should just know that like 
I believe Reason and Cato used to have a fairly close relationship at the dawn of the Libertarian Party. And it's one of these weird situations where a, you know, sort of trippy hippie magazine ends up being the voice of reason and the political party becomes the crazy thing. And you guys kind of parted ways, you know, what was, I guess the end of the 70s. I can't remember. Well, so Libertarian uh, Party postdates Reason Magazine, right? Reason Reason Magazine was founded before the Libertarian Party was founded. Right. And so, you know, there was this question early on when the Libertarian Party was founded of, A, how much coverage will Reason do of that mm-hmm. thing? And B, um, you know, are we kind of functioning as a, a newsletter for the Libertarian Party or are we functioning as, um, you know, a... Uh, a journalistic outfit that is right. covering it from outside. And, you know, it was the latter that we settled on. And, you know, but you do see in the very early days, um, you know, even at, right at the founding of the Libertarian Party, Reason Magazine was running debates about what the Libertarian Party could or should be, mm-hmm. uh, was running kind of the dissenting voices from within the party, even at its founding. So, you know, there's there has always been this question in the Libertarian Party of, is it, you know, is the goal to get people elected or is the goal to change the conversation? Um, and that oversimplifies it dramatically. Sure. Again, I am not, um, I'm not the closest party watcher of the LP. Um, I leave that to my colleague, Brian Doherty, and uh, to Matt Welsh as well. But um, that tension has always existed in the LP. And right now um, it is playing out in particular, in who holds the keys to the social media accounts of the various state parties. <laughs> and um, I don't know if you know this, Jonah, but sometimes people kind of act a fool on Twitter. I've, and, I've heard rumors. Yeah. So there's there's some of that going on right now. And I think that that is, again, I think that is a little bit of a separate question from, you know, are there still people at the grassroots doing the the kind of boring but worthy work of keeping the LP? LP on ballots of running people for dog catcher, um, which you know I do think is an important an important task for people to be doing just to kind of keep that possibility alive for the day when one of the major parties consumes itself, bursts into flames, and collapses into ash. First of all, I I'm all in favor of libertarian dog catcher because because I want fewer dogs caught. You want, um, you, you're you're a, 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 a you want to defund defund the dog catcher defund the dog catchers um, okay uh, so it's funny you know you're talking about how in politics people shouldn't like hope for things to get terrible so they can get better a lot of people don't know this the word defeatism or defeatist was actually coined in around 1918 to describe the Leninist position on why Russia should lose World War I to hasten mm. the revolution. So it was like the worse, the better. That's where we get the word defeatism. Now we think it's sort of like this psychological thing, but in reality, it was once a po- ideological strategy. Um, I want, and so I have, a, I have a weird question for you. Um, there are strains in libertarianism, which I think you, you would agree, that are very much of a hyper-individualist nature to be sure, right? And, and in mm-hmm. fact, it wasn't that long ago where libertarians in the sort of on the right were called individualists rather than libertarians, right? You guys managed to find an even less euphonious word than individualist. Um, but uh, there's, a, there's also a very rich, which I'm much more sympathetic to, strain of libertarian thought that says 
no community is actually really important to libertarianism and that that um libertarianism doesn't mean atomized alienated individuals without human connections it means that people can form the connections and have and be part of the kinds of communities they want to belong to and 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 those communities can have some some stickiness to them so long as there's actually the right of exit right i mean like go ahead be amish if you want just as long as you're allowed to leave and you're not a prisoner of the amish that's fine and and i think there's a lot to recommend that kind of libertarianism so the, but the question i got is like you know when you're talking about the your friends saying this was a, a great moment for libertarianism i think you're right and i think that your at least your telling of it sounds right to me but there's another side to that which is that we're living in this strange moment where a lot of people are losing sort of faith and trust in institutions they're sort of losing um they're they're forget government authority they're just having a problem with authority um and not just the authority of you know you know the boss or the cops or any of that kind of stuff but like the authority of institutions to constrain their behavior in any way and um is that libertarianism too or is that a problem even for libertarianism because you know like the dudes the the, the dude who doesn't want to get off the couch and and thinks that there's no you know that, that he is he's sort of a c.s lewis type man, man without a chest kind of thing that's not the libertarian ideal either right and um um how much of from a libertarian perspective, how much do you think this loss of faith and trust in institutions is a good story and how much of it is a bad story? And I assume you think both, but I'm kind of curious how you do the math. Yeah, this is something that we talk about a lot on the Reason Roundtable podcast, which I do with my colleagues every Monday, um, because we disagree a little bit amongst ourselves on this question. So you've definitely hit on, on kind of a tricky one. Um, my view is that an ideal libertarian society is going to contain an awful lot of people behaving non-ideally, mm -hmm. right? So the guy on the couch will be present um, in my ideal society, also in yours, also in everyone else's, sure, right? Sure. The couch guy is a real, a real powerful force to be reckoned with. But um, I think that the your your point, particularly about the decline in trust in institutions. Um, I, I, I agree that it is important for people to have things outside of themselves to look to um, and to be a part of. Um, I highly value the things outside of myself that I, you know, look to and I'm a part of, despite being a, um, you know, coastal elite atheist, you know, rootless cosmopolitan nightmare person in the eyes of many uh, conservative, and. Um, I think that the, the the mechanism whereby the trust in institutions thing becomes pernicious for libertarianism and, and for people who value individual freedom is that it, it seems to be true. Um, and this is a little bit of a study show move, right? Mm -hmm, but like, mm -hmm. it seems to be true that when there is declining trust in institutions, that people do not, in fact, become more independent and self-reliant. They, in fact, demand more government. Mm -hmm. So in places where trust in institution decays, um, people tend to vote in um, or support strongmen. They tend to call for more regulation. They tend to call for more interference um, in, the in their own lives and the lives of their neighbors from the state. 
um, if they, you know, if they perceive that institutions around them are not trustworthy. And and I think we've seen that on display. I think that is a, that is a dynamic that at least anecdotally does seem to be happening. And that, you know, that is a kind of death spiral, right? Like that's a that's a really terrible dynamic to set up. Um, my view about you know, where do we look for solutions to this is, um, you know, there are many, many functions that we we currently have consigned to the state and that we are unhappy with the way that the state is performing them um, at, you know, education uh, as an example that has already come up here. Um, but um, the list goes on and on. And I think that, you know, the 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 places that I think are interesting and the places where I am looking for solutions are where the private sector, whether it's for profit or nonprofit, is trying to compete with the state to provide a good that the state is already providing for free badly. And that's the hardest thing you can do, right? I mean, you know, they, you can't compete with free, right? This is mm-hmm. that is a really, really challenging thing to do. And yet, because we have this decayed trust in institutions, because we have, I think, a quite you know clear-eyed view that government institutions in particular are not providing what they said they would provide to us, um, that has to be the place that we go. We can't, we can't, we're not going to fix the government institutions is almost always my view. Um, we're going to have to grow around them, route around them, find an alternative. And, and I think people are great at that. Like, this is a thing that humans are really good at and that wealthy people have more ability to do, which is why I think free trade and free immigration is, you know, free markets are so important. Uh, because if we have more resources, that's that's our best chance to solve some of these problems. Um, so when you said, and, and, I, and I agree with it, but when you said um, in any system, in any society, there will always be people living non-ideally, including in a libertarian society... Um, I guess part of my point is the definition of not ideally will be on and however you define it and however I define it, there will be people living at both tails of the bed bell curve, not ideally, right? There'll be people who are living however you define virtue, however I define virtue, much more virtuous lives than me or you. And then there will be people living much less virtuous just because it's going to be that kind of distribution regardless of what the metric is. But, you know, one of the points, you know, you know, Jonathan Adler, our friend Jonathan Adler, who's um, I think the last truly consistent Frank Meyerish fusionist type um, out there. Um, you know, one of the points he he often makes is that I think it's him um, that in a libertarian society, large numbers of people are going to be free to live conservatively. Yep. Right. And they're going to be communities Absolutely. that you're not going to you would never want to live in that even I would not want to live in. And um, uh, but so long as people want to live in those places, they should be free to do so. And it seems to me that the the the, the loss of faith and trust in institutions makes that kind of pursuit of happiness more difficult. And I am, and I guess part of my problem with my long, I've lost a lot of my problems with libertarianism, as you know, but one of my consistent problems is that I think the language of libertarianism, at least public facing is way too invested in the purely individualistic stuff. 
and that there's a rich language though of libertarianism that is much more communal oriented that would be more attractive to people and you just don't at least i don't hear it much you know and unless i'm having a conversation with you over drinks at a liberty fund thing yeah i mean i think people have complicated feelings about their communities and about the communities they were raised in and about the communities that they've chosen as adults and so you know one thing that i struggle with is um you know, when I when I want to talk about this thing that you're describing, which I think is really powerful, right? Um, the, this idea that people are going to opt into a wide variety of social arrangements, some of which will, um, some of which will be people voluntarily constraining their individual options right. on a given day or week or month or year. People join the Marines in the priesthood all the time. That that's what they're doing when they do that, right? I mean, you don't even have to go that extreme. Like people sign contracts to work at a job for a year. People sign right. leases. Like people, people, you know, enroll their children in school. Like I, I think, you know, Americans and, and all people are, are absolutely willing to constrain their options because they see benefits there. People do that all the time. Um, for me, of course, the question is always how, you know, how can we do it with a maximum amount of consent, right? You can't, you can't say, um, and, and, you know, the concept of consent of the governed is one of my great bugaboos and always will be. Um, there is there simply that is simply not a reasonable use of that term uh, mm -hmm. because because I consented to nothing jerks like I, I really <laughs> didn't. And um, and, uh, you know, and by voting, I didn't consent, although I don't vote. And by, um, you know, by not moving, that's the closest you get to consenting. But still. Um, does not, I think, match a meaningful understanding of consent. That said, um, you know, I think we're actually seeing this uh, a little bit in the school choice conversation right now. So there's this, you know, there's this idea among conservatives in particular that um, the public schools are bad and they're doing all this woke curriculum and, um, you know, we need to, we need to figure out a way around that. And some people quite rightly are saying, you know what, school choice, school choice might be a great solution here. What if parents could choose to send their children to schools uh, that were somewhat tailored to their specific cultural desires or needs or, um, or their kids' personalities or learning styles? There's all these different things you can imagine. Um, and what if all the money that is currently going into the education system was somehow remanded to the parents through an education savings account or a voucher so that they could choose you know, where their kid would be educated. And I find it interesting that those, those conservative, the people who are, have glommed onto school choice, who are doing so because they would like their children to receive a more traditional or conservative education. When you say, okay, but you know, that means that right down the street is going to be like trans kids Academy, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and that's the bargain. They're like, oh no, not that. Like th those are illegal. Right. Um, and, and, you know, the idea that, um, the idea that you can have your preferences realized in a world where you are unwilling to make space for other people's preferences, I think is, um, you know, it, it's impossible and, it, you know, it's not, a, it's not a sustainable equilibrium and uh, it is increasingly not even considered in the conversation. I mean, you know, you like the word liberal. I like the word liberal too, even though it confuses everyone all the time, everywhere, as you know better mm -hmm. than anyone. Um, to me, the word pluralism is is what I keep coming back to. Mm -hmm. um, that you know, pluralism and toleration are deep, you know, deeply embedded in the American experiment, and it ha it it does not mean 
being cool with people that you're cool with. It means allowing people who are doing things that you think are perhaps morally wrong, certainly not maximally efficient, um, and maybe even self-destructive. Um, you have you have to let those people make choices you don't approve of. That is like a huge, huge part of what living in a free society and living in a pluralist, pluralist society looks like. And I think many people would grant that in theory. Mm-hmm. And then they come up against, okay, but someone down the street is learning critical race theory and they're like, nope, I'm out. Um, and that can't, that cannot be how we function, that we, we will never find our way out of the culture war, among other things, unless we are able to take a step back from that. Yeah, you know, it's, um, it's funny, you know, for a long time, I'm sure you remember, you know, uh, Nick Gillespie, your colleagues, Nick Gillespie and Matt Welsh, they, um, they did a book about the rise of the independents and then, then David Bowes at Cato and Brink Lindsay. There was this moment, the, you remember the libertarian moment? I do. Speaking um, of non-euphonious terminology. Exactly. I mean, like, uh, like, I mean, I like Brink Lindsay and, but like to, to, you would think that you could almost replace the word, the, f- several of the letters or add several letters to the word libertarian and only improve the way it sounds. And instead they managed to but make no. it sound worse. But, um, there's, this has always been my kind of problem because there's 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 a lot of polling that if you look at it, if you ask the questions the right way that says there's a huge block of libertarians in this country because if you right. do it as a sort of a policy thing are you do you want the government to do this that that and the other thing people a lot of people not a majority sometimes but like sort of a majority you know it's like if you cobble together the coalition of pro choice pro gun um, and a few other things you know there's this libertarianish Venn shaded Venn diagram thing that says, you know, look, libertarianism is, is centrist. It's popular, blah, 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 blah. And, and the problem with that, as I was writing 20 years ago and 10 years ago, um, I've moved on to have different white whales, um, is, uh, the problem is that every American considers themselves libertarian and, in the sense that they want total freedom for the things they want total freedom for, but the things they don't want total freedom for, they don't want other people to have total freedom for either, you know? And so like, yeah. um, well, I know lots of is... liberals who think that they're super libertarian, but they have positions that a lot of libertarians think are horrifying. And I know conservatives who think they're super libertarian who have positions that a lot of libertarians think are horrifying and people want to maximize the freedoms. They think other people should have the right, the freedom to have and none other. And that's not the libertarian position. So I think, I think that is a true and fair critique of the libertarian movement. However, I, or, or of, of libertarianism as a political philosophy. However, I think it is an equally true and fair critique of conservatives and liberals as well. That is conservatives want conservatism except for, for their three mistresses and two abortions. Right. I mean that, you know, just on the simple personal hypocrisy level, also on the political level, um, you know, all all political philosophies fail on their own terms. And I, I do think that is, you know, a, a deep truth um, when they're implemented. But uh, I do, you know, for me, libertarianism is directional. And, you know, I don't, I don't need to fully formulate a utopia that mm-hmm. uh, 51% of Americans agree on before we start heading in that direction. I think we can say, you know what? There are, there are some, there's some low hanging fruit 
Um, and we should we should go after that in ways that can maximize individual freedom. And, you know, again, the places that I see that are um, the size and scope of the regulatory apparatus that surrounds us all. Right. Like there are just big chunks of that that could be hacked off mm-hmm. and that many, many people would broadly agree should be hacked off. Um, I see it in um in the free movement of people and goods. I think, you know, that there's, there are some forces arrayed against, um, against stuff and humans coming across our borders that, um, really, you know, you, you could build coalitions to open those up and that would be really valuable. And, you know, I think, you know, on a more micro level, there's stuff like crony capitalism, which literally everyone hates, right? Like there is no, nobody says, I want to be a crony capitalist when I grow up. Like that's not, like nobody thinks that it's a good configuration whereby big businesses and big governments work together to preserve monopolies while at the same time governments claim to be doing trust busting. Like that equilibrium can and should be broken down um, and that is, I think, fundamentally a libertarian position. Um, and th- there's just a bunch of places where I, 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 I do believe that that cluster of, you know, you might call them, you know, we used to say socially liberal, fiscally conservative, but those terms now mean nothing. Like, I don't right. know, Jonah, did you ever used to use that explanation never to explain it. libertarianism? Like, not really. Not, I mean, not for yourself, maybe not for yourself, but I used to say, you know, that used to be a thing that was intelligible to people. Sure, but sure, now, sure, sure. Socially liberal means absolutely nothing. Like, does mm-hmm. that mean a bigger welfare state? Does that mean, right. you know, uh, like whatever the ACLU stands for now, which is no longer actually defending civil liberties? Like, does that mean who knows? Uh, and then fiscally conservative, like what in the world could that yeah. possibly mean right now? Certainly nothing um, that you can see in action, you know, in the U.S. Congress, for example. Um, so I, I guess all that is just by way of saying, I think, um, yes, there's always going to be a kind of government hands off my Medicare phenomenon that's going to exist in the world um, where people want to get free stuff and also want to be left alone. But um, I I think those impulses, those impulses can and should be harnessed and that they are they are broadly shared among Americans and that and that COVID has shown that. I mean, COVID Mm -hmm. has really shown this like very American spirit of, of you can't tell me what to do. And I respect that in people. Um, I especially respect it when the people who are telling them what to do are wrong, <laughs> like are, are wrong about what the right thing to do is. And, and when people know that and call it like they see it, I think that's a super powerful force. Not to bring, not to drag the nationalists back into this, but that's one of the things I find so unbelievably hilarious about so much of the sort of NatCon integralist, whatever label we're supposed to, NatCon's in, for listeners' sake, Steve says I don't explain things enough. Uh, integralists and nationalists, there's overlap, but they're not the same thing. Nationalists are sort of what they sound like. People who think, you know, the nation should be strong, like bull, do, you know, have the musk of Trump, yada, yada, yada. Um, and then the integralists are much more into this, into these, uh, theories that liberal classical liberalism itself procedural liberalism is uh defunct and and leads to social decay and um and that basically um uh a bunch of people like the one like the integralists should be able to impose a heavily religiously informed 
theory of the highest good about how people should live and then use state power to impose it. Um, so with that out of the way, one of the things I think is hilarious is that a lot of these integralists love to attach themselves to these sort of Gatson flag, anti-COVID, uh, you know, American, small town American libertarians, you're not the boss of me types. And the idea that somehow you can hitch a movement, an ultramontane Catholic movement that wants to ban porn and uh, reimpose the Sabbath and uh, impose uh, all sorts of restrictions on people's lifestyles, um, that that crowd is your natural constituency is just one of the dumbest pieces of political analysis out there. And yet you see it all over the place. That said, there's one place where I, I have to say, bless your naive heart. Um, because you said everybody hates crony capitalism. And I would say, and this is among the most depressing things about that's happened to the right, crony capitalism is all the rage now. You know, corporatism, which Adrian Vermeule says is the, one the, and all those guys say is one of the signature things that they believe in. It's what Trump believed in. Trump literally believed in crony capitalism. I mean, he liked to, you know, rewarding companies that gave him political wins and he liked picking winners and losers. And he thought his own genius is smarter than the market. Um, uh, Matt Schlapp and the CPAC crowd is just, is, is crony capitalism in miniature. Um, um, but all corporatism is, is, you know, it's like, what's that old Michael Kinsley line? Um, you know, the, the, the scandal isn't what it, what's illegal, it's what's legal, right? Crony capitalism is just the word we use for the informal arrangement that corporatism is the formal form for, which is that the state sits down with the big actors and it, it, it gives them preferences and they play winners and losers and they're all, they're all around the table eating um, and on the menu is everybody who isn't around the table. And that is like, that's the new hotness, you know, from Orrin Cass and those guys and the national conservatives, they love that. The Democratic Party has loved that crap for for years. I mean, forget Obama. I mean, going back to Gephardt or FDR for that matter. And the 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 Scott Lincecums and, and Jonah Goldberg's out there trying to be neoliberal shills. Um, uh, our ranks, you know, we, we, we're happy few, but we are few. Anyway, just yeah, wanted I mean, to get that I, out there. I, I, uh, you are right, of course, that the wielders and immediate beneficiaries of corporatism or of crony capitalism as practiced in the U.S., of course, favor it. Like, someone's doing it, right? Like, obviously. Mm -hmm. But I think, um, you know, the vast, vast, vast majority of Americans, when this phenomenon is described to them, are sort of instinctively and correctly against it. Uh, but fair. the other thing I would say is that even the even the people who are active practitioners of crony capitalism are also opponents of it, right? And you see this all the time with the big tech um, sector, right? So we both have Mark Zuckerberg you know, brought before Congress once a month for his like ritual, you know, denouncement and um, groveling, and he says in these in these um, in these hearings now, you know, oh please. I, just let me help write the regulations. Like I, right. you're right. We should, we are bad. And, you know, uh, mea culpa. And I, we're just going to help you write regulations so that, you know, we can be good and clean once again. And, you know, at the same time, the same people who are calling in, you know, Facebook to complain. And, and of course, this is another left, right um, convergence thing because we have bo both 
sides want want big tech to be doing something different. Those things are in conflict, but they're using the same tools to try and extract those concessions. It's all going to end badly. Um, at the same time, though, the you know Congress is also introducing bills to just break up Facebook. You know, we have we have Elizabeth Warren simultaneously saying, "Yes, Mark Zuckerberg will come let you write the regulations that will eventually shutter out your competitors," and also we will destroy you, right? And right. it's because they they recognize that they can't their stance can't be we are now buddies with um, big corporations, even if they in fact are. So yes, I mean I think the the amount of economic protectionism. Um, that has emanated from the left in the form of, um, you know, tr- trade protections often at the behest of unions and on at the right from the right in the form of by American and, you know, uh, fear mongering about um, what the, what it will mean to do business with people and nations whose ideologies we don't share. Um, that That is clearly ascendant. But I think that, that when I say crony capitalism, I mean a slightly different phenomenon, which is truly the, um, you know, the too big to fail phenomenon, mm-hmm. the, you know, the bailouts, the whatever it was that brought Occupy Wall Street into the streets, which no one kind of can fully remember right now, except for maybe it was something about student loans and something, something banks, but whatever, it's all going to be fine. Um, that, that thing I do think has a broad based opposition in the general public and, and that phenomenon is worth paying attention to. Um, I, I, I think I think that's all fair, and I and I do want to just say back before when you did your study show moment move, um, which is a phrase I'm going to steal now. Um, it's all yours. Um, uh, the other phrase I'm going to, by the way, I'm going to use all the time. Um, I was telling my wife this is that whenever I've decided what I want to do, um, and I'm going to, and I know I'm going to do it, I'm still going to tell people I must consult with my Duma. Um, yeah. I, I just love that move by Putin. Um, yeah. so, and I'm not saying Putin's a savvy genius and he's super awesome and I love his Musk or any of that kind of stuff. I'm just saying I love the farce of it. It's um, a good phrase. Yeah. You know, this is a point you've all live in makes and you know, about, uh, when you're saying how, when people become sort of adrift or deracinated and all that kind of stuff, they don't become more individualistic. They become more dependent. That was Barack Obama's second inaugural, right? Where he says, you know, we want to help the individual, you know, but people think this, people who talk about building yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, if you don't have boots, you're on your own, right? And all this nonsense. And the way, and you can read the the actual language of the inaugural, he describes in America where it's the federal government in Washington and the individual and nobody else in between, no families, no friends, no communities, no institutions of any institutions of faith or any other kind. It was life of Julia stuff. Right. And that's the, you know, I've been bugging my wife to write a book called my husband, the state for a really long time, because there's this trend in some in feminism where, you know what, Jonah, you keep your kinks to yourself. Okay, baby, <laughs> like whatever, whatever I, floats your boat is fine. Yeah, well, fair enough. Fair fair uh i do not consider myself the state but um uh but there's this real you know there's this real effort for a very long time to use the federal government as a means to replace the institutions that normally sustain us and build us up and i understand it in some states some cases there were some interventions that are only if not justified then certainly defensible but and in other cases they're not but like the idea of replacing civil society you know this is like um i remember hillary clinton having she was like um 
her definition of civil society was um, government. It was basically it was something like civil society is a word social scientists use um, to describe the things people can't do for themselves. And so government has to. And I was like, right. Well, that's terrifying, this is, you know, and this that's manifests, bad. This manifests in a whole bunch of ways. But the, the latest manifestation to me is the billionaires are a policy failure phenomenon, yeah, 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 right? Yeah. Like this idea that um, if someone happens to have a lot of money and they want to use it to support causes outside of themselves, right? They've bought as many yachts as they're going to buy, and now um, they want to cure malaria or, um, you know, build rockets or um, give money to Newark public schools or whatever it is, um, that um, the the idea that that shows that something is very wrong, that right. of course that money should have just been allocated to the state and the state should then in turn allocate it however it sees fit. Um, I, I think that is kind of a microcosm of this thing you're describing, which has long been a preoccupation of mine. I absolutely share this concern that somehow um, we are erasing the things that dominate our lives, right? Mm -hmm. the, in fact, most people experience life most of the time through things that are neither individual nor state right. action or, or or neither governed by sort of solely individual choice nor nor state power. Like this conversation. Like this conversation, <laughs> like, um, you know, like the, you know, like their dating apps, like their homeowners associations, right. like their, their church, like their Twitter stream. And I think, you know, the idea that, um, the idea that those things can and should be absorbed into the state or devolved all the way down to the individual, um, you know, it's, it's sort of a straw man because nobody actually is moving all the way to that goal. But I think, you know, pe people and especially politicians over and over do say the quiet part loud and they do sort mm -hmm. of say, well, OK, yes, we can't we can't do that. We cannot, in fact, stop people from organizing themselves in various ways that are south of the state and north of the individual. But wouldn't it be simpler? Wouldn't it be easier if we could? Wouldn't it be better if there was only one hand moving the chess pieces? Right. Wouldn't it be um, wouldn't it be kind of a, a goal or a dream? And again, you know, to me, the the simplest and clearest rebuttal to that is to just say, yeah, but in the areas where we have done that, where we have gotten really close to collapsing things down to individuals interacting directly with the government, and that's that, those those are the places where the state is the least efficient. Those are the places where the state is doing the least good and where it takes a kind of huge either communal or individual effort to try and innovate around around those broken spots, around those places where things are really, really bad. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't exactly know. I think that the the sort of rise of polarization, which is which is something that I used to be a denier of. I used to say, like, listen, me too. I get it. Everything's everything's getting worse and worse. Everyone thinks everything's getting worse and worse. And like you golden age dummies, like it, everything's actually getting better and better. Like I love me some Steven Pinker. I would die for that man, but I don't have to because, you know, human lifespans are getting longer and longer and the world is less violent. Um, but the um you know, the specific kind of literature on just narrowly 
like the the rise of partisan polarization and in particular the rise of the belief that the people who with whom I disagree politically are no longer worthy of procedural protections, are no longer worthy of being treated with a kind of baseline human dignity. Um, certainly, at the very least, there has been a genuinely documented change in what people, what trash people are willing to talk to pollsters about people who disagree with them. Mm-hmm. And I think even if it's just that, that's still pretty significant. I, I no longer will say like, eh, just like go read Scandalmonger and remember that the founders all were just like constantly shooting each other in the head and spreading rumors. It's fine. I now do think actually this 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 phenomenon is real and is really concerning. And I think it's doubly concerning because it we have collapsed lots of our extra political identities, affiliations, and preferences into our political preferences, right. right? So this is the idea that if someone tells you they shop at Whole Foods, you now can like quite reasonably guess how they vote. Mm-hmm. Um, or if someone tells you they watch NASCAR, you can quite reasonably guess how they vote. And I think th- that thing is really bad, um, both because, again, it pushes us more and more toward it's the state and the individual and nothing else. And I think it's really bad because there is no space for for people like me, I would say probably people like us, mm-hmm. Jonah, like you and me, people who people who don't who really aren't on one of those teams right. and uh, and who want to kind of mix and match and who think that the best thing is when people mix and match those identities. Um, but like whenever I do a tweet or say, you know, at a speaking engagement, some version of you should have close friends with whom you disagree politically. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, something is wrong. I get now a huge amount of pushback on that. People now no longer believe that is true. Right. They basically think like, oh, sure, you're saying like be friends with Hitler? Like that is 100%, like it's Godwin's law immediately. And I don't, I don't know what to do with that, but it's, it's pretty bad. And it's pretty bad for, like I say, for libertarians who are going to say, well, we, we're not going to fit your template regardless. Right. You know, you, you, so can no one be friends with us? Maybe everyone can be friends with this. This is this is my this is my pitch. It's like I'm I'm at least fifty percent probably aligned with you. So come to my barbecue. So um no I I I think I sorry I but I, I don't often say this word on this podcast but ditto um <laughs> um and let us not forget that this podcast is called the Remnant for a reason. Um, uh, I know, it, Jonah. Can we pause for a minute and talk about how incredibly mad I am <laughs> that you got this name for a podcast? Like, I mean, it's my own fault. Like, I could have, I could have started a podcast called The Remnant at any time. This is this is totally on me. But you, jerk. <laughs> it's funny. David French is furious at me too. You know, and, and he has so many good puns on his name, though. He doesn't get to he, that's greedy. Yeah, no, that's true. That's absolutely true. Um, but, you know, for him, Remnant is both the sort of Nokian, you know, libertarian mm-hmm. thing and the Isaiah thing, right? Because he's, you know, this yep. devout Christian and, 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 you know, and my response to him is, uh, sucks for you. So, um, uh, that's it. So like, I, I, I'm going to vomit up words and then I'm going to ask you to sort of impose meaning on them. Um, fine. You, have me do your emotional labor, Jonah. It's fine. <laughs> um, as you, as you know, you know, Hayek, this is a running theme of mine. Hayek, 
uh, in Fatal Conceit talks about, and uh, for listeners, I'm talking about Selma Hayek. Um, Hayek has this, um, sorry, Steve. Uh, uh, Hayek has this distinction of the microcosm versus the, the macrocosm, right? And the microcosm is the world of intimate relationships. And I don't mean just sexual. I mean like, you know, friends, family, faith, community, neighborhood, people you know by name, right? People you, you associate with experience, um, you know, um, and the macrocosm is the extended order of liberty where we have contracts and rule of law and, um, and commerce and all of these things. And I'm, I know I'm not telling you anything you don't know. And, um, um, and his point was, or part of his point was, if you try to take the principles of the microcosm and impose them on the macrocosm, you'll destroy both. And if you try to take the functioning of the macrocosm and impose it on the microcosm, you'll destroy both, right? Because the family isn't a commercial enterprise. We do not charge our kids for food. We do not, you know... Um, Speak for yourself. Get, get. I mean, how old is your kid? <laughs> I have an eight-year-old and 11-year-old. Okay, so I you shouldn't charge be charging them yet, you know. Um, and... Uh, um, and at the same time, I don't let strangers sleep on my couch, you know, but I would, you know, if, if a friend or a relative, you know, was in need, I, of course they could stay on my couch, but I don't let just someone off the street do it because there's, there are different rules for the macrocosm than there are for the microcosm. Anyway, that metaphor or that, that way of thinking about things, I think is extremely useful. And, you know, when you were talking about, when we we're talking about the, the sort of the, the state crowding out extra government institutions and whatnot. Uh, it made me think back about this other thing that Hillary Clinton once said, which you, which crops up every few years um, from it, the sentiment from other people, which is that she said, we as a society need to move beyond the idea. There's any such thing as somebody else's child and talk about something that will trigger Nate, you know, uh, latent libertarianism in a lot of people is telling me that like my child is no more my child than it is their child. And, um, uh, and, but that's a classic example of, you know, it's like, I hate it. And partisans on both sides do it when they call the president America's dad, you know, like, you know, Trump yeah. is America's father or Obama was America's dad and that, that kind of stuff because it's using the, the, the logic of the microcosm, and applying it to the macrocosm and saying that the entire society of 330 million people should live like a family. You cannot scale up a family like that. It just doesn't work. And, um, and so I, I have come to believe that most problems in at the theoretical level in our politics stem from people screwing up these kinds of metaphorical understandings of our politics, right? They make category errors. They want the nation to be like, or an organic body, right? Like, you know, that was sort of Wilson's whole thing, or they want it to be like a family, um, or sometimes they want it to be like a tribe or whatever. And, um, um, and this is the thing I always have always given credit to libertarians for is they're the only ones who never really make this category error. Liberals do it all the time. Conservatives do it often and they're doing it more frequently, but libertarians have always understood that the government can't love you. Right. I mean, that's sort of like the fundamental insight of libertarianism is that the government can do things that are good or bad. It can write checks. It can wage wars and all that kind of stuff, but it can't fill the hole in your soul. It can't give you meaning. It can't love you. And 
Um, that said, is there a metaphorical framework that you use that like explains this stuff? You know, if you're trying to indoctrinate some wayward kid who might become, you know, you know, some Padawan who may one day become a libertarian <laughs> Jedi, like he's high in the midichlorian count. How do you bring him? What, 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 what mind tricks do you use to like bring them over to your side? How do you, what metaphors do you employ? Yeah. I mean, so I think, first of all, I think your, your basic point there about, about this kind of desperate desire for that metaphor to work, which comes from so many directions, um, it, it's a it's weirdly powerful, right? And mm -hmm. and you see it, um, you know, you see it laundered in a bunch of different ways, including, um, I think not just government can't love you, but also um, government cannot endow you with dignity. Right. Government cannot um, instill virtue in you. Um, and I, you know, I think those are, those are not quite the same thing though. They're very, very related. Right. It can um, increase your you net know. worth, but not your self-worth. Oh, that's a, that's catchy. You like that? Um, like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the, you know, this idea that, um, this idea that people can and should find, um, find these kind of deep, these deep things in the state, um, and that it is the state's business to figure out how to provide them is such a such a crucial and fundamental misunderstanding. You were joking earlier that uh, libertarians struggle with how to how to deal with the role of children in society, but you know I think it's worth noting that um, societies that have come the closest to um, actual existing socialism, it's it's the family, it's the it's the presence of children that breaks those down too, right? You mm -hmm. know your kibbutz is running great. But the children's house is the is the thorn in the side, right? I mean, you're, you know, yeah, you, a really good you, point. Yeah. parents parents want to be with their children, mm -hmm. and they want to try to shape their children and and, and have do things for their, their children and not for other children, right? I mean, that's right, just that human is special nature. and different. Um, right. and and you know the the idea that um, you know, arguably uh, an election in Virginia was recently uh, won and lost on the question of of uh you know, who has say over what happens with children between the hours of, uh, you know, eight and three each day. So uh, I think that that it happens on the macro level and on the micro level. Um, all that said, the the sort of governing metaphor that I that I like that I that I try to use um, and, and I will say I use many metaphors. I'm a, I'm a metaphor user and abuser, though, not nearly as bad as my beloved colleague, Matt Welsh, who is uh, a metaphor mixer. I do try to do only one metaphor at a time. I think that is the sacred duty of a of a writer um, to to try not to confuse matters. But um, I I really think that you know the idea of consent is is kind of my my governing mm -hmm. one, right? Um, so um, you know, again, not everyone everywhere, but most people would say, yeah, like consent is important. Consent is a really important thing in human relationships. Like, can you? Can you honestly say that um, both parties to any interaction have consented to it? Now, again, um, you know, being born is a tricky one here. Um, so we'll uh, we'll set that aside. But um, to to sort of look to maximize consent in all things um, is is I think like a, a framework that gets you a lot of the way through 
trying to figure out how to be a good person, how to be a person in the world that interacts with other people. It helps you get to how do we build things that are larger than the individual? How do we, you know, how do we have communities and churches and schools and businesses, um, you know, again, I think to sort of vet the goodness of that thing by asking did the parties consent to be a part of it? Um, and and what did that consent look like? And what were the constraints on it? And can we, um, you know, can we help maximize the incidence of consent? And then when it comes to the state, um, you know, that, that then puts in relief, puts in, I think, a pretty stark, um, you know, puts in pretty stark relief that most of what the state does is not about consent. Um, and so that, to me, takes you to a place where you say, we want to limit the scope of the state. We want to limit the places where people are doing things, where people are being forced to do things because of the threat of um, legal sanction, imprisonment, whatever it is. Um, those are not consensual relations. And that, um, and that I think crucially for people who, who do identify as conservative, but really for all people, um, that only under those circumstances is virtue possible. You can't, you, you're not virtuous if you were forced to do it. Right. Uh, and I think that is the, the fundamental missed, you know, missed step of the national conservatives, of the integralists. You, you cannot require virtue. You cannot mandate virtue. Um, both because if you're doing it because you're scared you're going to go to jail, you're not really being virtuous. And also because we might be wrong about what virtue looks like. <laughs> like whoever has whoever has the keys to the jail and whoever has the guns might be wrong about what virtue looks like. I think that's a real possibility that uh, we should take into account. So, um, you know, all, all of this is toward the end of helping people live good lives. Um, and I think it, you make it harder for people to live good lives when you dramatically constrain the scope of their individual choice. You have to choose virtue. Um, and my, my, as you said at the beginning of this podcast, my conception of virtue and yours might look quite different. Um, because of that, that puts you into the realm of pluralism. You know, right. we're going to have many visions of virtue. They are going to be existing side by side. You should be able to consent to various experiments in virtue and join them and leave them uh, if you want. Um, that's the voice and exit piece. And that's what a good society looks like to me. Um, you know, the idea that um, the idea that someone somewhere in you know, the bowels of the Department of Education here in Washington is going to teach my son what it means to be a good person is such a deep and fundamental misunderstanding of the role of the family and the role of the state that it actually is a little bit shocking to me that anyone can get to that conclusion. So only because we've been in such violent agreement um, on this, which will disappoint. Go ahead. So, Pick so a fight with me. I'm no, here for well, it. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure it's a fight. I'll just say as, as someone who still considers themselves a conservative and not a libertarian, um, I am clearly more comfortable with the concept that has bedeviled a lot of political theorists of pre-commitment, right? You know, like when you're born into the United States, there are all of these attachments that you might think are mystic chords of nonsense or, or superstition, but that are, feel very real to a lot of people, which is that I should care more about my country than some other country, right? There's a certain amount of patriotism 
or nationalism. We can have a conversation about the differences between the two, but for the, our purposes, they're basically the same. A certain amount of expected loyalty because this country is mine and, and, and no other is. Um, similarly, there's a huge amount of pre-commitment baked into the idea, and we can say it comes from the Bible, or we can say it comes from evolution, or we can say it comes from just sort of common sense, but there's an enormous amount of pre-commitment that comes in when it says, you are the boss of your kids. You and, you know, your partner are the boss of your kids, right? And, um, uh, and that in the one sense is you could say it's socially constructed, except it feels very real both to the kid and to the parents. And two, it is recognized by every, pretty much everybody else in the society as a thing. And no one, the kid didn't consent to it. No one put this thing up for a vote. No one put all sorts of things up for a vote um, about what constitutes good manners, what constitutes proper English. I mean, you can go down a very long list of things because as, you know, as someone who likes Chesterton probably more than you do, you know, uh, in, you know, tradition as Chesterton says is democracy for the dead. And, um, and I think there is something real about that, even though some traditions have to be overthrown and all the rest. And so like, I hear what you're saying. And I think for adults is a perfectly valid heuristic, you know, it's a perfectly valid way to sort of approach a question. I've always argued that there should never be a meeting of government officials ever that doesn't have at least one libertarian in the room because you always need one person to ask the basic meta question is why should we do anything at all? And if you don't have a good answer to that, you shouldn't do anything, right? I mean, I, Chester's a defense guy. And, um, but I don't think everything, I, I, that everything, the presumption of volitional empowerment on everything is something I'm less comfortable with than, than you are, which should surprise neither of us. Yeah. I mean, not, not shocked here. I will say uh, the idea of tradition being democracy for the dead, like that to me is a case against both tradition and democracy. And like, the dead. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And the, I mean, I, the dead, if the dead stay dead, they don't bother me. But um, when they're trying to, you know, get, be part of the 51% that's going to govern me, they can, you know, buzz right off. Um, I, you know, I think that, I think that this, um, you know, like I said at the beginning, for, for me, this is directional. Like we are so right. far from a consent driven society right now that uh, anything we can do to move that way. Yeah. Great. Like oh, the, the last thing on my libertarian to do list is like maximize uh, you know, the political freedom of children. Like it's, right. it's, I have a long list and yeah, like yeah. that thing is That's right at the totally bottom fair. there, but, yeah. but it's not, you know, it's not nothing. Right. And I do think, you know, for instance, um, when you think about how incredibly, incredibly messed up our foster care system is mm -hmm. and our child protective services in most, uh, you know, especially in big cities, but frankly, everywhere um, in this country, um, you know, a huge amount of those problems, um, you know, they, they stem from the fact that, you know, there are no intermediate institutions for children. And, and to the extent that they exist, the state is always at war with them, right? That we have, we do have, in the case of children, the family and the state. Um, and, you know, when, when churches or other community organizations try to step in there and try to be positive actors, uh, they almost overwhelmingly are better 
than the state at those functions, um, and yet they're they are consistently crowded out, and it's because of our very narrow views about the capacities of children. Um, you know, I am not I am not uh, you know a child emancipationist or any of that stuff. Although I think those people have some interesting points, but um, but I do think that um, you know I do think that just just as virtue is not possible for adults without freedom, um, that it actually like I think. I think what good parenting looks like is, you know, make yeah, as quickly as possible, creating as large a sphere as possible for um, for independent decision making in your children while, you know, while informing it. Right. I mean, the, the, all of this is going to be bound, as you said, both by the natural sentiments of children for their parents and parents for their children, um, just as people born into nations tend to have uh, feelings of loyalty and affiliation to people in their nations. Um, but I think those things are also also worthy of examination. Um, and I, you know, I, I would say for the most part um, that feelings of national loyalty, particularly when they come at the expense of others or when they come in the name of excluding others, um, do more harm than good. But um, I think in the family, broadly, they seem to do more good than harm in the short run uh, for kids. And that's, and that's fine. Um, it, you know, to me, the other, the other kind of, the other piece here, and I think that this is, you know, this is something that's always worth thinking about is we have, you know, we, we take for granted that um, there are some things that need to be done, you know, outside of the individual and that people will seek order. Um, I think that's true. People like rules. Mm -hmm. People like clarity. Um you know, one reason I am a libertarian is because I am an authoritarian in my heart. I think I know what's best for everyone. I would love to tell everyone what to do all the time. Um, and like I've settled for being editor in chief of Reason <laughs> Magazine, but I would be dictator of the planet. Um, but I recognize that I am wrong about what is best for everyone else. I am like really wrong about that, like spectacularly wrong in many cases. And knowing that there are other people like me out there, you know, what is a system we can build to keep people like me in check? Um, and, and to me, that is one of the deep appeals of libertarianism is that all of us have an idea of what other people should be doing, but we have imperfect information, something that uh, our guy Hayek is always uh, mm -hmm. nattering on about. Um, again, Selma, of course. And um, that we have imperfect information and that we also ha don't have shared values that that there are limits to to our you know our shared values and that that is um it is crucial to respect that um and that is true you know even even of the occasional 11 year old um though don't tell my 11 year old that i said that i i shall not um in fact if you catch me talking to your 11 year old um See, that's the great thing is you can't call the state. Um, but, <laughs> but call someone. I mean, um, no. never call the cops is a is a is a good rule. But um, ex I will make a Jonah Goldberg exception to fair, my never call the cops rule. Fair enough. All right, we should end here because that was a lovely way to end it. But I I I, I always do this myself as I go in. They're like there's like one question or two questions I really want to ask that I <laughs> never get to, and then I'm at the end. And so completely changing not completely changes up, but changing the subject. As a sociological thing, can you just explain to me what it is about a, the subset of libertarians that you often see at libertarian-affiliated events, but you know, broader than that as well, that um, 
makes them so seducible by things like gold buggery and cryptocurrency. Like what, 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 what is going on with you guys that, that, that it, it, it just, it, it, it is weird to me how I, I get working your way around the man and all that crap, but like what else is going on there? Cause it, 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 it sometimes feels like it overlaps a lot with prepper culture, um, which is a little different than libertarian culture. Yeah. So I think, I think you are right to see that connection. Um, I think I've thought a lot about this because it is true. Uh, and one thing I think is people become libertarians in part because, uh, a lot of, a lot of libertarians, particularly, um, more kind of, I guess you would say cosmopolitan libertarians, right? Like, so not the basement full of guns people, although full respect to the basement full of Mm -hmm. guns people, like seriously, but, um, you know, people who, who come to libertarianism because they read a book. Um, they like it because it's a, it's a, it's a cheat code for politics. It's, it's a, it's a way of understanding the world that other people don't have or are, are only have part of. Um, and it is a, it is a totalizing system, right? You can, you can explain everything with it about politics. Um, now, this is this is true of other political philosophies as well, of course, but as someone who um, was a teenage Ayn Rand fan um, and sometime objectivist, uh, you know, the the sort of the idea that you can build a a full system for understanding the world um, and then it answers all your questions downstream, I think is very appealing, um, not just to libertarians, to lots of people, uh, but libertarianism kind of specializes in it. And um, if you think I've seen something that other people can't see. I and in particular, I have seen and better and, and I am more clear-eyed about the risk that politics and politicians and the state pose. I am therefore better positioned to hedge against that risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I see the risk more clearly, and I can do some arbitrage. I can I can cheaply hedge against that risk, and that is the appeal of gold. That's the appeal of crypto. That's the kind of prepper inclination. Um, that's the Swiss bank account. You know, reason reason in the eighties had some had used to do a financial issue that was basically like how to hide your money from the feds. <laughs> um, incredible stuff. Like I'm so sad we can't do that today because every freaking loophole has been closed. But um, the so you know I I think that and actually I I think we've seen this to some extent with COVID as well that there are there are people who who, you know, the, the, I've read the, I did my own research people, right. Mm-hmm. The, I read the studies, um, and people who have been right about something, mm-hmm. right. Um, people who, people who got in early on the ground floor and understood where a trend was heading. Um, they then have kind of an increased faith in their ability to be right about the next thing yeah. that everyone else disagrees with them about. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's a big part of it. Um, I also think that, um, you know, if you if you have a particularly strong belief that the state is immoral, that what the state is doing is wrong, um, uh, either because you are a full fledged taxation is theft, you know, non aggression principle type anarchist, or just you know more of a garden variety libertarian, um, then it is morally incumbent upon you to not fund this this enterprise. Mm-hmm. And so I do think that the other thing that's going on there is people who are just looking to to minimize their 
guilt by association with the state. And I really respect that. I mean, I, I think, you know, that's that's one reason that I don't vote. That's one reason that I believe that companies and individuals who minimize their tax burden are doing a, an objectively good thing. Um, you know, sometimes you get like Apple gets called up for, you know, well, you did all these things to legally minimize your tax burden and that's bad. No, absolutely not. Like, I don't want to fund an enterprise that I think is is doing immoral things, including, you know, running the biggest prison system in the world, including, uh, you know, uh, well, literally everything the state does. We don't have to go into <laughs> yeah, all the yeah. details. But um, but I think, so So I think there is that as well. I think that, you know, people who are looking to operate in economic systems outside of the traditional system because they want to just do, do their part to not support an immoral enterprise, um, you know, that that leads you to some um, to some of these yeah. you know, solutions. And some of them are better than others. And some of them have stood the test of time and some haven't and some, you know, but um, but I think that's that's where the impulse comes from. And I, I kind of admire it. I mean, I'm not uh, a, a high a, a, I'm not a high level practitioner of the arts of uh, of, uh, you know, cryptocurrency and privacy protecting software and all that other stuff. But I admire the people who do it. Um, I have, I have other theories. I mean, I think that's all correct. I just probably, there, there are many rooms in the mansion of crypto gold buggery paranoia preparedum. Um, I just think it's particularly funny that of the slice of the Venn diagram that are both preppers and Bitcoin people, um, I just think it's kind of funny because like, I'm pretty sure that in the zombie apocalypse or, or the, whatever the apocalypse looks like crypto I mean, is not going to be super useful, but I could be wrong. Okay. But we just spent, we just spent two years in a boring dystopia, right? Like sure, we sure, just sure. spent two, two years in a slow moving quasi apocalypse. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, if, if there's one thing it, it has shown us, it is that when things go wrong, they're going to go wrong, not in the way we expected. That's and so, you know, I think, you know, there, there, I could certainly paint you some scenarios wherein, you know, my Bitcoin wallet is still operable, but, but I don't want to rely. Yeah. yeah, but yeah. I don't want to rely on government water or something like that. Like, I don't know, like yeah. probably it's not precious bodily fluids type stuff, but you know, it's, there are many apocalypses besides the zombie apocalypse, and I hope for both of our sake that whichever apocalypse comes for us, it's one of the squishier ones. Yes, I, I, I for all for more squishy apocalypses. Anyway, um, <laughs> Catherine Mengel Ward, thank you so much for doing this. I hope you'll come back. Um, and I would uh, love to. This is a fun conversation. And um, um, everyone should obviously, everyone should who listens to this podcast should know what reason is. But if you don't, you should go check it out. Um, is the flagship libertarian organ um, of the United States. And um, um, and one of my oldest and dearest friends, Ron Bailey, is the science correspondent there. And, um, and that's at least, his, that's still his title, right? It is. Yeah. He is our science correspondent and he has been busy of late. Yes, uh, yes. We, um, we, have, we were very, uh, we were, we felt very fortunate to have Ron on staff and totally ready to go uh, when it became clear that the science correspondent was going to be at the intersection of all of the news 
uh, for the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, and Ron is Ron is both very clear headed in his analysis um, of kind of epidemiological studies, but also um, his last big feature for the print magazine was a genuinely um, just really incredible and also incredibly depressing piece about um, about confirmation bias and about uh, the ways that our various kind of cognitive quirks as humans are making it harder and harder to uh, to do science, to do social science, and to understand and interpret social science. Um, so we have a, a little bit of a problem of a science correspondent who might be experiencing some like existential despair about the power of science right now. Um, but maybe you can have Ron on to talk about that. Himself. No, I should. I should have him back. Um, he's it's weird. He's he's shockingly easy to book for drinks or dinner, but shockingly difficult to book for a podcast. I don't know what that's about. <laughs> but uh, I think the only solution is a drinking podcast, my friend. Uh, yeah, the last time I did that with Congress and Mike Gallagher, it turned out poorly for me. But um, uh, well, that's a conversation for another day. Uh, Catherine Mang Award again. Thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Jonah. All right. So, uh, um, Catherine Mang Award has left the studio. Uh, I, I, um, I enjoyed the conversation. I know it was pretty, uh, intensely nerdy, um, and inside, uh, political theory baseball for some people, but you know, that's what you get when you tune into this thing. And, um, and I, I do think some people will like it. I hope they do. Um, and I hope to have her back, uh, on the Ukraine stuff. Again, if you were, you know, I could have scrapped everything to have a Ukraine conversation. I just thought, you know, everybody else is having a Ukraine conversation. I wanted to have Catherine on and, um, and I, you know, we just don't know enough right now beyond the fact that Putin's doing an evil and sinister thing that, um, is uh you know being condemned by pretty much everybody um and then we're just gonna have to wait and see how it, how it plays out so it just didn't seem to make sense to sort of jaw jaw like everybody else i do want to address one thing i I, mentioned, I briefly mentioned it at the top you know that uh you know leon aaron was deeply uh, my colleague from the american enterprise institute a russia scholar born in russia has written biographies of yeltsin and others and is a um a true historian and scholar of, of Russia um, um, and a wonderful guy. He was deeply, deeply skeptical. He basically said, you know, Putin will never invade all of Ukraine and occupy, occupy all of Ukraine. It remains to be seen. I mean, the Russians are saying that they're not going to occupy Ukraine. They're just going to sort of decapitate its leadership and demilitarize it and denazify it, whatever the garbage nonsense that means. But, um, but, you know, I think it's fair to say that that Leon was wrong and he wrote a piece for AI earlier this week saying, you know, sort of explaining why he thought Putin, why he had made that, had taken that stance. And I think that stance was defensible and it's also worrisome. And I, I talked about this a bit on the on the Dispatch Live on Tuesday night. Um, I find his argument for why Putin wouldn't go into Ukraine, uh, all of Ukraine, right? Occupy Ukraine, invade the whole place, go into Kiev and all that stuff. Kiev, sorry. Um, um, I found it persuasive because it is a really bad idea for Putin. It's extremely risky. Um, it's extremely expensive. Uh, it will, um, 
it raises the possibility, it doesn't guarantee it by any stretch of the imagination, that he will lose the support of the Russian people um, and that it would go badly. And it is not in his rational self-interest. And, and Leon's position was that Putin, um, while certainly having no problem killing people or declaring wars and that kind of stuff, because um, he's done it a few times in the past already, as Leon often put it, Putin succeeds when his wars are very short and seemingly bloodless. Now, one of the reasons they seem bloodless is because uh, Putin hides the body count from the public. And I think it's very telling that you know they're moving mobile crematoriums to the front, the Russians are, um, because they consider, uh, because Putin is terrified of images of body bags coming home because it never works very well for Russian leaders when um, they seem to be losing anything. And so if you don't see the bodies, maybe you don't think you're losing and you have to rely on state TV and yada, yada, yada. Anyway, the, Leon's point was that in the past, Putin has been a cold calculating, certainly evil, um, but fundamentally realist or realistic or rational actor. And going all in in Ukraine would be um, irrational and not in Putin's or Russia's interests, even as Putin defines them. And as Leon put it, I should have called up the piece and had it ready, but, you know, he says that assumption was, you know, based on that being the same Putin that he has studied for all this time. The problem, and this is what I was talking about on the dispatch live thing is if you actually watch that speech that Putin gave or, you know, read that speech that Putin gave, what was it on Monday? Um, it becomes much more clear that um, it is not assured that he is still a rational actor. You know, uh, there are reports that he's incredibly isolated, that he doesn't have an inner circle of advisors anymore, that he's getting up there in age and he's obsessed with his legacy and wants to be like Peter the Great and yada, yada, yada. And, you know, people get weird in their old age, um, particularly when they're, they've been in a bubble for a very long time or a bunker for a very long time. And they have all sorts of confirmation bias and, and never mind narcissism and all of that. Um, so it is possible that, you know, I was a little skeptical when Leon made his case, but I also, you know, largely deferred to him. Um, because one, I thought he was persuasive and two, um, he just knows Putin and Russia so much better than I do. Um, but I also find his explanation, at least the partial explanation that I read earlier this week, um, kind of persuasive is that Putin, this is not the same Putin. And that's very worrisome. Um, that means that like Putin's weird threat that he issued last night saying, um, anybody tempted to interfere, uh, you know, should realize that they will face consequences, the likes of which, um, they've never faced in history. Um, I don't know that that's a nuclear threat. Um, I kind of doubt in reality it is a nuclear threat, but I also kind of think that he um, wants it to be ambiguous that it might be a nuclear threat and that he is actually, even if he's a cold and calculating and still a rational guy, he has made a decision to seem like he is not one. Um, and um, and that's that's truly worrisome. And uh so we'll see what happens obviously we'll be talking about this more 
Um, we'll obviously talk about it a good deal on the group podcast, the dispatch podcast on Friday. And, um, anyway, uh, thanks again for listening. Uh, thanks again for putting up with me and I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.